everyone. Welcome to this live. My name is Michelle McKenzie, and I am the host of the Where's the Funding podcast, a platform that demystifies entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. My guest today, my guest today is Dr. Lolita Robinson, a seasoned physician entrepreneur, startup advisor, venture partner, and extensive healthcare technology and services expert. She is the founder and principal of Fortis Industries LLC, a firm specializing in blending data analytics, due diligence, and a strong industry network to identify and evaluate prospective healthcare investments in licensing and partnership opportunities for various clients. Dr. Robinson calls on her extensive industry experience and relationships to help bring together venture capital and corporate innovation firms with appropriate healthcare startups and early stage companies with the potential to significantly improve the quality of healthcare. She also facilitates their collaboration via incubators, accelerators, and other entrepreneurial support organizations. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. It's a great to be here. I am excited about this opportunity and would welcome um, any discussion and then help want to hear your questions. Yeah, we have someone here who sits at the intersection between medicine, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. So if you have any relevant questions, you know, for Dr. Robinson, make sure that you get those questions in while we have her here in this forum today. So I'm going to go ahead and kick off with my first question. So okay. you are a doctor who never practiced medicine and instead pursue your MBA. And if I got this right, you're one of the like first five medical doctors to get an MBA and have spent your career blending the two. Tell us mm -hmm. about that transition into business from medicine, the first business that you started and where you start funding to launch and how it led you to where you are now. I know that's a bunch of things, <laughs> but we can just start with the transition from medicine yes. to entrepreneurship. Okay, so if all you know, this has been a 20 year journey, so Please bear with me with me because it's going to be a, maybe a long story or here. Maybe we can get the <laughs> oh well, we'll try. So <laughs> you'll stop me if I'm just going on way too long. But well, you know, I will start with this. So the transition um, for me started very early, and as I mentioned before, this is sort of a 20 year journey that I, in the process I began asking how to combine medicine and business during my third or fourth year of medical school. Around that time, you know, you go through all your clerkships and I was going through pediatrics, internal medicine, surgery. And I'm like, I don't want to do any of these, you know, so what do I do? And so I went to the dean, I went to the University of Kansas and I went to the dean and said, hey, what can I do to combine medicine, business? I'm, I'm have that entrepreneurial thing. Is there something out there for me? And they basically was like, no, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to practice in Kansas and be quiet, you know, so go find your own way. So, you know, I basically graduated, you know, from medical school, did my internship in internal medicine and still had that same desire to do entrepreneurship and something else and combine the two. And so one day I, I um, had a conversation with one of the deans at the University of Colorado at Denver, 
And he's like, look, we're going to have this very first cohort of an MBA health administration program. And we want to tailor it to folks who've kind of been out in the industry, been out in the world a little bit. Would you mind actually participating? And so I actually didn't think very long and hard about it. And I said, yeah, I would love to do this. So I applied and got in. And it was sort of that light bulb moment going through all the classes, health economics, and just kind of understanding the administrative part of it. And so at, at some point, you know, after I attained the MBA, I was recruited by a startup company to work um, as their medical director. And pretty much the rest is history. And in this role as a medical director, I acquired such valuable experience in R&D, marketing, sales, clinical, regulatory, business development, distribution, because you're in a startup company. So you pretty much do all of those roles anyway, in some form of, you know, form of fashion. But to me, it was just heaven in a sense. And so, you know, I got involved with the local bio association and learning about bio entrepreneurship. And I said, man, I'm getting pulled towards the startup thing. What do I do? And I'm learning and I'm learning. And so the company I was working for was acquired. And so I said, okay, where do I go now? Do I go to California? Do I go to the East Coast? Do I go Georgia? Where do I go? And so knowing me, who I research everything, I decided to go to Maryland. And so I packed up, moved to Maryland, got a job at a biotech company. And three years later, I partnered with the University of Maryland, some scientists there, and we launched a medical diagnostics company. And here I am. And I think that experience in and of itself is just why I'm here today. Day and why I'm able to do what I do today. You did that very well. Oh, thank it you. didn't take a very long time. Very quickly. I love it. So you're a doctor, you're a founder, and now you help corporates to mm -hmm. source startup companies. Yes. Sort of that bridge between um, VC capital. So mm -hmm. tell us how you got into that. Let me, oh, this is crazy. So when I, in my previous role, I was an entrepreneur in residence at Blue Cross Blue Shield, Nebraska. So I was there for about three and a half years. And my primary role is really external innovation. You go out and source and evaluate health innovation services, products to bring in house, whether if it's investment opportunities or it's conducting policy, you know, and bring them in, in house to work with them and partner with them. I loved it. I thought it was a great role. I learned so much about the investment space and kind of understanding what that's about, um, looking at startup companies from a different perspective. And so after that role ended, I started getting calls to actually do this, you know, to source for venture capital firms or other corporations. And I said, is this really a, a, a job to do? You know, is anybody going to really pay me to just go out and find companies? And well, if they were calling you, they're willing. <laughs> yeah, to pay they're you. willing to pay. And I said, okay. So I basically formed um, Fortis Industries, and here, and this is what I do. And I absolutely love every minute of it because every day you're you're kind of learning the industry, what's new, what's trending, but also you're working with startup companies and help them sort of figure out what to do, funding opportunities and resources and that warm intros and just kind of networking with them, but also encouraging them too. So this has been a joy for me. I'm surprised I'm even, I even landed here. So who knew you went from MD struggling, you know, in Kansas, trying to figure it all out to now here. <laughs> so yeah, I it's pretty amazing. Are there any medical doctors listening who are contemplating getting into entrepreneurship? And doing yeah. something in the field of mm -hmm. medicine or health tech. 
if you're in the audience, we'd like to hear from you. Dr. Robinson's <laughs> here. Take your question. Yes, yes, yes. And now, and, and you can either, you know, mm-hmm. when we get to the Q&A section, um, come on and ask your question or send me a DM. Yeah. So moving along. So in your role sourcing startup mm-hmm. for VCs and corporates, what are some of the mistakes that you see founders make when they come to you looking for funding? Or what is your experience with that? Yeah, so I think the the main mistake that I see across the board is really having no real paying customers or consumers actually test your product. You know, I've been, you know, I, I, I've done this before too, but in, early on, you kind of go to your family and your friends like, hey, check out my product. What do you think? And can you test it out? But at some point, you know, you have to go out there and really talk to someone who's going to write you a check. <laughs> That's the main thing, right? And money, so, talks. money talks, right? And so if you don't have a paying customer, you have no business. So I see that quite a bit where they haven't really gone through that um, customer discovery and validation. It goes a long way. It's kind of hard. It's time consuming. In particular in healthcare, you might have to talk to a payer. You might have to talk to, you know, some doctors and you know how hard they are to get a hold of and do anything. So So you're like, if you're still at idea phase, you have a great idea. Don't come talk to me yet. You need to go talk to some other people. Talk to to your customers first. Yes. (laughs) Let me know if you have a business first, you know, but I will, you know, there's some companies that are still like in the idea stage and they want to kind of bounce some ideas around. I will definitely have those conversations. I, because I want to do, I want to help, but if you're really talking to me like, Hey, I'm asking for $2 million and you haven't tested the product. You don't know if there's a real true market for it. Then that gets a little bit tough. I can see how that could be. Yeah. Now, how do you evaluate the startups that land in front of you looking for funding? Yes. So that's a great question. So, Early on, when let's say I have an introduction or a company reaches out to me and they're looking for a certain amount of funding, um, early on, before I even have the conversation, I will basically just, you know, do my own research of them, you know, and, and understand their own business, understand the team, um, research their competitors, what's the market looking like, just so I have an idea before I go into the call. Um, So we have the call and I sort of have this sort of due diligence sort of checklist that I run through. And it basically, it's a whole list of questions. Yeah, so (laughs) the checklist, I know, know, the checklist, (laughs) it's questions about the team. So it gives me an idea of, okay, is this a strong team? What's their experience? Um, And sometimes I ask about questions about IP, you know, but also this is a regulatory affairs question or regulatory strategy. What have you conducted in clinical studies? What does that look like? But also I would talk about go to market strategies, um, why you need the funding and what a business model, which is key. That's another thing I see in going back to mistakes is they haven't fleshed out the business model. So we really have conversations about that, too. And just the product and technology itself. So what advice would you give to health tech startups in particular or, you know, any Mm -hmm. other any tech or other startup founder? Who is looking to raise funds? Yeah, so what should that fundraising process look like? Right, 
So early on, there are some things I kind of particularly want to see before we even go further. And I want to know, you know, for me, having that clinical background and being in healthcare and worked in every domain of healthcare for the last 20 years, I'm in this because I want to see companies actually make a difference and have an impact on healthcare. If you're going to basically add to costs, if you're basically not solving a real problem, filling any gaps, then I have a hard time really getting excited about your, your product or your service. So those are the first things I want to know is, number one, you know, are you really solving a true health problem? Are you reducing health care costs? Um, are you in particular having any impact on the patient's lives in your own community? And are you going to improve quality of care? Then once I see that you've tackled some of these questions, then I kind of get excited about it because I'm like, oh, there's a story here. There's something they can really do about healthcare because you know healthcare is just crazy market anyway and so I want to learn more about what you're doing and sometimes I come across a lot of companies that just add more calls or they're disrupting the clinical workflow and that's not let's not do that you know the last thing you want to do is disrupt a uh, physician's workflow throughout the day or add costs and so but I see companies that tend to do that have any companies come across your desk that you really, really like and oh, that are doing really good things that you might want to talk about? Yes, I can't disclose anything right now because there's some things in the works. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I particularly look at companies that look at sort of, the you know, that sort of population that people forget, you know, and looking at maybe lower income populations. It's looking at some of the Medicaid populations. It's looking at people who are disenfranchised. And so those are the companies that I tend to focus. I do. I, I like public health in this sense, though, too. But I'll, we all know public health is not cool or sexy right now <laughs> or ever been. And so people, you don't see a lot of those companies come through. But for me, the companies that I really like and I'm really keeping my eye on are dealing with, you know, maternal health or they're dealing with some tackle, some, you know, issues that are out. <laughs> yeah. So but. You know, but I, I do run into a lot of good companies out there that are tackling some challenges. And that's what I want to see. Because that, that's that's what it's about at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Right. What value is this company adding? Like what mm -hmm. is the major challenge it's solving and for what population is it creating value? Um, right. It's reducing costs or, or mm -hmm. something else. Yeah. And also companies, too, that understand that in healthcare, this is a journey. So it's not like you can just build the software, OK, and launch it tomorrow. It's something where you have to understand those nuances. You know, are you going to have to get this F FDA approved? And what does that look like? Have you had conversations with the FDA or if it's something about IP? Are, is this protected or are you going to have any challenges where you're going to have Medtronic come in and be like, uh, you're infringing and sue you? <laughs> you know, so have you really thought about some of those things and companies that come and like, yeah, we have someone on our team team that knows regulatory or we have this lawyer or we work with this we're starting to have conversations about clinical that's that's what I want to see those are the companies that I'm like okay let's keep talking okay now do you think that med tech companies might take a little bit more time to get off the ground because mm -hmm. of the research the regulatory all of those things that mm -hmm. those boxes that need to be checked yeah, those timelines can be particularly long um, for med tech companies, particularly also for looking at devices or therapeutics. That can be 
who knows, 20 years per se and, and tons and tons of money. So those are very company. Those are types of companies that require kind of specialty kind of investments um, because that's a long term. Um, for uh, me, I focus more on just health tech in a sense when it comes to like digital health types of products. Um, but also medical diagnosis is kind of like, ooh, I love it, you know, because that's kind of my start and everything. So I have some a little special place in my so heart for diagnostics what, companies. What, what gets you excited? <laughs> so if you're going to have a conversation with to make sure your company's in one of those characters. Yes, you know, yes. excited about that. Now, last year, let's transition a little bit um, to talk about um, raising funds. So last year, mm-hmm. U.S. companies raised record amounts of venture capital at just under $150 billion. But of that capital, only $1 billion went to Black or African-American mm-hmm. startup founders, which comes out to less than... of total funding per crunch base. As a Black founder yourself and someone who sources VC deals, what advice would you give specifically to Black founders? Yeah, a few things. I'm going to start off and just say this. Um, You know, I I find it frustrating at times when you hear about companies that receive you know, $15 million in funding, and it's just no more than, okay, I got an idea on the back of a napkin. And then you have some of us, you know, diverse entrepreneurs um, that, hey, you come to a VC, you need, you know, $15 million in revenue, loads of customers, everything, you know, but the kitchen sink um, before anyone would give you a dime. Now, that might be a bit extreme in, you know, in talk, but you get my point about that. You know, we have to seem like we have to have more in order to get the money. And to me, it's just, I find it difficult for most of us to, to raise that family and friends round since some of us are actually funding our own family and friends and paying their bills. So we're, if we need a 75000 for a prototype to develop a prototype, where are we going to get this money? And so we're sort of stuck in a sense, and I know companies have been stuck for a long time just trying to raise that first 100000 just to get the prototype off the ground. Um, but what I do see, though, the good news is that more and more Black investors are setting up their own funds to provide capital to a more diverse set of entrepreneurs. And I've just been, you know, since I've been in healthcare business for 20 years, I'm really, really just proud to see us launching angel and VC funds and collaborating to fund diverse companies. Um, it was not like this, you know, with me you know, throughout my career, didn't know, didn't, didn't, I honestly, you know, until a few years ago, I didn't know anything about VCs, angels, because I didn't, I didn't see anyone who looked like me, who was working in this industry. So to me, this is almost fairly new in the last few years for me, but I'm just, you know, these are the things I would say, more and more black um, investors are coming down, read them, know about them and get to know them. What do you think are some of the opportunity costs of not funding more diverse founders. Well, I think you're losing out on some great opportunities, some great founders, but also you're losing on great products that actually can really make a difference. And I, I'm tell I come across companies that I'm thinking, wow, this can really change some parts of healthcare. But 
they're all struggling at that very front of it of raising that money because they don't come from rich backgrounds or they don't have the network at the you know university alumni association so they're just they're struggling and I've companies that are going on for years that are still trying to raise that first hundred thousand dollars because no one else sees that vision and it's unfortunate because we're losing out on companies that basically can help aspects of the healthcare system and they're not given a chance. So what are some non-equity, non-VC ways in which founders of any color can raise funds in the early stage for yeah. their businesses? So when I founded my medical diagnosis coming way back in 2008, if that tells you anything, um, you know, we were really, we were too early for VC funds. And I mean, honestly, and so we knew we had to go some of that traditional route. And let's say this was before equity crowdfunding. So that was not even the option at that time, which is now good that that is available. But we really had, you know, the good thing also is, living in the state of Maryland, honestly, I felt that they were very supportive of us and they basically helped us the find- The state of Maryland oh, does a lot. They do a lot. Yes. I had someone who works in the um, a liaison. Uh -huh. um, I can't remember exactly what, but when they talked about all of the systems and all yeah. the support that's in place for the state of, for entrepreneurs in the state of Maryland, mm -hmm. I think they're leading the country. I I agree. And that was, you know, I moved there, what, 15 years ago to, you know, and from that day when I they had the, you know, life science corridor along 270 and you have access to NIH and FDA and all the other federal agencies. So if you really needed to talk to someone, it was like, let me send them an email and, and schedule something. And also you had organizations um, like Women in Bio, which was brand new when I first moved to uh, Maryland. Now they have chapters all over the place and they were instrumental in help guiding me and towards say, okay, you may be not ready for VC funds, but let's explore the state funds that's contact our local economic development. What do they have available in order to, and we receive funding in order, you know, to help us get off the ground. And so to me, I am indebted to, to the state of Maryland for doing that. But I think my advice to other ones is check locally, check statewide. Um, be in contact and make contact with your state, you know, investors locally, get in contact with the startup entrepreneurship, you know, the ecosystem locally and just network and figure, you know, and work with someone to help figure that out. Because if you're not VC ready, go other options. And also there's state grants. There's um, federal grants like SBIR, STTR, um, which we can talk what, about what as well. What do those acronyms mean? I know people <laughs> tend to like work in like the DMV area and working government <laughs> love throwing acronyms around as if the entire world knows what you're talking about. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So SBIR is a um, small business innovation research grant. So these um, are non-dilutive grants. And you basically, if you're starting out, they're funds that you can receive, I think, a hundred and so thousand dollars to get started, basically developing your prototype and moving forward. And then you go on to phase two and three, which ends up being more additional clinical studies for funding for that, but also helping to commercialize your product. And so I know a lot of companies, the companies that I worked at, uh, worked for in Maryland was an SBR awardee and they were acquired by AstraZeneca. So those types of things. But also you have um, like the 
um, Homeland Security has a number of different programs as well. A number of these federal agencies also fund these innovation hubs that are actually located across the U.S. So I think Colorado, Kentucky, Long Island, Minnesota have these innovation hubs. And their whole idea, their aim is basically to work with, you know, early stage life science companies to help them with developing technologies, but also uh, commercialization and providing education around entrepreneurship. And that is a lot of things that you knew. There are others like i that's available. Um, and then one that I think is might be one interesting is BARDA. And this one stands for Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. And they're out of the Department of Health and Human Services. It's an accelerator network. Um, that's a whole nother option. So some of these include like first flight, which I think is in North Carolina, MedTech Innovator, Plug and Play. And, you know, it's just they're out there. And grants.gov, if you're a research angle, go on there and find grants too. And again, think local, think state as well. No, that's that's really great advice. This is a good transition into the incubators and the accelerators. What are some non-government um, incubators and accelerators that entrepreneurs in the sort of health tech um, space should know about? If you there, have any it, off the top yeah, of Yeah, there are thousands. <laughs> you know, there's so many different. I think number one, you do, you got the big ones like 500 Star Y Combinator, um, you, you, you know, IndieBio. Go to where you find where you best fit. You know, again, Talk do your research. Like, yes. what, what, what does fit look like? So, understand how much equity they're asking for, number one. But also, if you're a healthcare-focused company, health tech company, find accelerators that have the um, staff, but have, can support you as a health tech company. So do your research in a sense as well. I mean, there's some popular ones that everyone wants to go to, but make sure that there's somebody there on their staff that's very well versed in your space can provide that support and guidance for you too. There are a I lot of them out there. Similar advice to like, don't apply to the school, apply to the program. Yes, <laughs> sure exactly. Right. Who can really give you Are they going to help you? Exactly. Yeah. And that next step beyond the accelerator too. What's that support behind, behind, you know, beyond that? Yeah. So backing up a little bit, you mentioned about, you know, being too early for VCs. Mm -hmm. When is it, when should one start approaching VCs as a, as a, as an early stage startup? Yeah, I, I hate to say this, but I would say, you know, again, the first thing I really look forward to is number one is, do you have any traction? You know, I'm, I'm going to go there and because traction meaning, meaning for, let's say healthcare, um, are, have you, are you partner with any payers, you know, are any physicians using your product? Are you generating any revenue from them? Are your customers actually buying your product? Are they paying for your product and how many to give me the data? What's the numbers out there? And also you have any early data to show that, Hey, whatever healthcare part you're doing, is it working? You know, are there any outcomes that you're noticing? Have you, have you, you know, um, published any studies, things of that sort that I'm looking for? No, oh, that is some good advice. So black women represent 42% of new women owned businesses, which is three times their share of the female population at 14%. And according to American Express in 2019, state of the women owned businesses between 2014 and 2019, their growth in the number of firms, 50% outpaced all women and businesses in general. But, but 
black women, especially in tech, are consistently underfunded. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, they are consistently underfunded. <laughs> you know, we have credentials. We're highly educated. So we know that's a given. Because but, you, you fall in this specific category. So oh, absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you this question. You know, but I've even been challenged because of my credentials, you know, and who I am, too, by someone who didn't have an MD, you know, MD or any, anything. So for us, I found it, it was so hard. And particularly my time in, back in 2008, can you imagine that time? We didn't have all of this, you know, the, the MD and MBA combined programs or, you know, for non-clinical support, non-clinical programs out there, that was non-existent. So going back in those days, you really had to kind of fight for it. And I remember one time um, I was asked to present in, at a pitch in, in, out in California. And I was told, you know, again, I've, I hear other people have been told this as well. Hey, perhaps you need to have a man present on your behalf because I mean they're not going to really look at you like you know anything you know really that's the best kind of what they wanted to say uh, and so and I said no I'm I'm this is my company I'm developing this I'm going out there but and you I know I think people have done this kind of like tongue-in-cheek but it's shown that it's made a difference mm -hmm. absolutely it's, it's so sad and unfortunate I was having a conversation recently um, about an article in Kenya um, about an expat who was able mm -hmm. to raise funds for a startup that many didn't even think was solving a real problem, mm -hmm. did that with ease um, because he was not from that environment. Mm -hmm. And so that does happen. And, you know, the whole idea that you need someone else to front your idea right. just because of how you look and how your credentials and your qualities mm -hmm. might be challenged. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. And I'm sure those stories happen today, too, you know, because. No, I, that story was from yeah. July. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying, is that, yes, there you go. You know, it's it's still happening. Um, and I, I'm just I, I get I'm just frustrated by it as well, because everything is so hard for us to move forward. And I think sometimes, too, is, you know, our our products or our businesses tend to be community-based because we're working for and towards the community and building the community. And I think sometimes it's like, well, that's not big enough. Yes, it is. Because we affect those communities. We make those communities healthier. That affects everybody else. You know, the neighbors, everybody, the whole population. So that just, it just... Uh, it, I, I'm just had enough of it, to be honest, and I'm tired of us struggling so much and to get our voices heard out there and people to listen to us and really believe in our vision, our vision, not yours, but our vision and let us take it forward. Fund us. So with that, let me let you take a drink of water and see <laughs> if there is anyone who has a question that they'd like to pose. We're here, ready to take questions. I think our audience is mainly in, in, in listening mode, and I, I have to assume that they're liking um, what you're saying and they're tracking along with the conversation. So, But again, if you have a question, you can direct mm -hmm. message me, and we can get you into the conversation. So Joyce has joined as a speaker. Joyce. How about you go ahead with that question? 
Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Robinson, and thank you, Michelle, for um, putting this together. Uh, I've heard some of the things that you've said about um, funding and particularly Mm -hmm. where it has to do with, you know, do you have any customers yet? Mm I am uh, working on a project that has nothing to do with actual health care supplies or processes or anything like that, but more so with electrification in rural areas, hmm. off-grid project. And that's about a, as much as I can say. Yeah, okay. And I probably said too much. Um, but, you know, so in that regard, you know, the question of customers at this time, mm-hmm. you know, is is limiting until the, the prototype or the pilot project. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself requires funding as mm-hmm. well. So it kind of, you know, I'm sitting back and saying, well, Gee, is there any, you know, how, how else am I going to get it off the ground without money, you know, and yeah, yeah, and so forth. So advise me. So (laughs) you, so Joyce, no, that's a, yeah, I know. No, that's a great question. So Joyce, let me, let me help me understand. You're focusing on a rural communities, right? Right. Okay, so have you, I mean, there's actually funding and grants throughout the state, I don't know which state you're located in, to support ideas and solutions and products for those who are trying to challenge the rural communities. There's money out there. Um, So again, wherever state that you're located in, contact, I don't, I can't think of the name of the rural association, whatever it may be, but Mm -hmm. really talk to them, but also consider partnering with an organization or any company that actually has a foothold in those rural environments that can, you can help bring your business forward work with somebody else if you think that it's going to be something where the fun is going to be a major challenge for you partnering might be a good opportunity but sometimes look at those community organizations look at those rural organizations there's money and i think even with some of the federal government money there's money for rural um uh, products as well and development as well so Mm -hmm. I, i think there's something there but try try partnering with someone to get you out to the market where is your market, Joyce, or where where is this activity targeted? Like, what geographic area? Right. So I know I said um, we are in the United States, and I said rural, and I should have been more clear to say, you know, in develop in a developing um, in developing countries. Basically, it's in, ah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it it makes it gets a little bit more complex. <laughs> it it does. You know, having lived in um yeah, having lived out of the country for some time. I totally can understand that. And I think it's, it's hard, particularly companies here um, or funding here to go overseas. So depending on that com- country that you're working with, I know, you know, on the ground, it's very hard to, to <laughs> make those introductions and to partner. I can understand that because I had my challenges as well. And sometimes you have to partner with a local organization Again, partnering with a local organization who knows the system, who know the right people that basically, you know, you can work with. Yeah. Out of the country, overseas is is very difficult. But you could also look at grants from development organizations that are working to to solve that Mm -hmm. that challenge. Right. So the U.S. government has the Power Africa initiative um, Mm -hmm. for off-grid energy. 
And there are lots of other sort of development agencies and development finance agencies that are funding that type of work. So you need to figure out which ones support that and whether Mm -hmm. or not they have grants or development challenges that are open that you could potentially Mm -hmm. apply for. Yeah. And I do hear, you know, like last week, there was something that the Power Africa that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, mentioned that, uh, um, some awardees from the Shell Foundation. And so, mm. forth. so I'm just wondering how did they, you know, I guess I just have to go and apply when the next round and, and see what it is that they're looking for and see where I, I qualify and then tailor my, uh, my, my business uh, plan accordingly. But thank you yeah, so I much. Think you should, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, Joyce, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. um, I think you should, um, if they have a newsletter for that mm-hmm. specific grant, like get on their newsletter mm-hmm. so you can get um, notified when they're opening up another RFA. Sure. Right? Okay. And mm-hmm. go on their website. They often have on their website their eligibility criteria. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell yeah. you what they fund yeah. and where they fund. They always have this information. And that's one way in which you can figure out whether or not you're a good candidate for those funds. And if I were you, I would look at their current list of awardees and reach mm. out to mm-hmm. one, a couple of those people yeah. and have conversations with them to talk about their project mm. and yep. how it's structured and what they're doing. Because that's a good way to figure mm-hmm. out how do I then align myself to mm-hmm. make sure that I'm a good candidate for this opportunity. Yep. And they might ask you to actually join one of their, you know... <laughs> proposals as well and projects as well so again partnering is key exactly Mm -hmm. you have to do that outreach and you have to network and get to know who those players are that's that's very good advice i didn't think about those things thank you so much thank you you are Mm -hmm. most welcome joyce does anyone else have a question that they'd like to pose while we're doing q a or you can send it via dm Mm -hmm. So outside of friends and family who are often tapped out, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, grants as mm-hmm. one way, maybe incubators mm-hmm. and accelerators. And then the next round is potentially maybe VC mm-hmm. when there is some traction. Somebody, a little birdie told me that you mm-hmm. might be working on a fund. I don't know how much you can say about that and what the fund will address. So whatever you can tell us about that fund would be great, particularly for people who might be listening, who might be looking for funding. Yes. So yes, yes, that that little burly, thank you. (laughs) And the little birdie. Oh yeah, that was me. I forgot. (laughs) It was that little birdie. Um, So I'm, you know, I, I will say this. I've had um, this whole, you know, the v, working in the VC space is is sort of a love hate relationship because being an entrepreneur and starting companies and having to pitch in front of VCs and I just oh it's just so much and I'm like they, they don't like us and they don't want to fund us and then here I am on this side actually working as like a VC <laughs> and I'm just I'm battling some different things but I said you know what again Before I see you so get into yeah uh huh. 
because you've been on the other side yes, of pitching, trying to get funding, and now mm-hmm. you're on the other side of the table, mm-hmm. is there anything that you're trying to do differently to make it easier for the person on the other side of the table? I actually, you know what? Great question. And absolutely, because having been on the other side, which a lot of folks have not, you know, I basically spend a lot of time with those startup companies and particularly those that I know that might be struggling a little bit, but they're very, very close. And I do spend additional time with them to say, okay, this is what we're going to need from you. This is where, this is where it's going to go. Here's what the conversation is going to be like and prepare them ahead of time. I do make that effort because I think it's so important for us and our companies to be well prepared before we sit in those pitch competitions. I know what questions my team are going to ask. So I'm going to help you and tell you, give you a heads up. This is what you need to know. And this is what you need to come and bring to the table. And so you don't know what you don't know until someone puts you on game. Right. Exactly. So I will do what I can <laughs> to be like, let me give you some ideas what this is going to be like. And so for me, you know, that battle going from the other side and being the VC side, you know, but I look at it, too. I said, well, maybe this is where I need to be because I have a little bit more empathy towards those startup companies. And so when I have conversations with my team who are investors, I can kind of come at them and say, you know what? This is something that we probably need to think about where this company is going. Or so do you find scene. yourself doing a lot more sort of like advocacy? Yes, <laughs> I do. I do. You know, I particularly look for women business, black and brown businesses, just businesses that people that I know come from really hard situations and try to get them for and get them in front of people. That's what I do. And that's kind of the luxury that I have working now on the investment side. And so this new um, fund is basically I'm working with a really great team to sort of launch a fund for pre-seed and seed investments in consumer centric health technology companies. And so so it's across the board, but again, you know, I, I look for certain things and certain companies to bring to the table and get in front of them. And, you know, it's been such a learning experience, you know, it's something kind of new to me, um, but I'm just eager to start really, again, working with these startup companies and seeing if we can get them some money. I understand that struggle, you know, and I want to just make sure that, you know, I get them in front of somebody and we can have a conversation, at least get them heard and get them some money. That's kind of the goal here for 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 an entrepreneur who's probably never raised before and like someone in joyce's position who's sort of Mm -hmm. who's just getting started what does that process of looking for funding look like especially at the venture board because it takes time because it's Mm -hmm. lots of conversations it's not a quick process no and someone once told me that you should start looking for money when you don't need it. Yep. Because if you're desperate for money, when you're looking for money, you're in trouble. You're in lots of trouble because then you start giving away your your company, (laughs) you know, way too much of your company. You own pretty much nothing. So, you know, I, I agree with that, you know, start, Really at the very beginning, I mean, you're going to have to, as you're developing your plan and, and putting this all together anyway, is looking at how we are going to fund this. You know, I can only use my savings account for so long, you know, so I can't sell my car and my house and everything for this. How am I going to get this money until I can get that revenue in and get those customers? So you start thinking of that from before day one, you know, before you even start doing any activity with this, that's the kind of first thing you need to do. And then once you have that and once you kind of move along a little bit then it's, it's a matter of okay should we are we vc because i know everybody
everybody thinks, oh, VC, we got to go after that because everybody's raising money. It's so VC, sexy and glamorous. It's so sexy and glamorous. No, it's not. <laughs> right. But a lot of companies are just not, what is it called, VC backable or something, you know? So look at other ways, non traditional ways. There's revenue based financing. Once you have revenue, you basically work with investor and take a little percentage of that. Look again, grants, you know, again, I'm going to keep pushing state and local, but I'm going to tell you that caveat there, not all state and local actually provide any funds. So just put that out there as well. well. Some of them just provide maybe what we call capacity building or technical assistance, which can be valuable in and of itself. It can be valuable, but then there are some company, you know, some, you know, economic development, like Maryland has Tedco and they fund, I think it's $75,000 to help startup companies. And that's a great program. It's been around for years. So it just depends on the state, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, I don't it's, know it's if process. Joyce is in the DMV area, but nope. she is, she <laughs> I know. check out, the, you check out <laughs> Maryland. State yeah. Maryland. State of Maryland. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fortunate, but I'm, you know, and the thing too, thing too i was able to move to maryland right because i can move who else can do that i mean everybody can i just pick up and like i'm gonna move to maryland because there's money i'm gonna move to california a lot of us are just not able to do so but i think where you have to build that community where you are network get to, again get to know those state folks those pl- you know key players get to know those local investors you have to get out there and work it because if you're just sitting at home behind your desk and like okay i'm gonna talk to some investor locally that's not gonna really work you gotta you gotta get out there so give us a little game on networking oh man I, <laughs> you know <laughs> i always thought I'm, I'm not the best networker but you know what after 20 years i've got a very strong <laughs> work and i've had conversations with people that i had not had a conversation with in 10 years and be like hey i need you know what's going on here da, da, da. and boom there's a connection right there or a warm introduction but i would say go after and search for those people who are in your sector in your space in your field like-minded souls other entrepreneurs they may be even your competitors go and learn about them have some meetings with them zoom you know all the things about zoom have the zoom calls i mean a lot of that upfront work you're gonna have to do i have a question mm-hmm. how do you reach out without seeming or feeling <laughs> needy or desperate you know i i have i'm gonna have a hard time answering that question because i just reach out to people you know because for me my business you know i've had businesses before where i had to reach out to potential customers and just cold call some of that works some of it doesn't work but i don't care i'm gonna go ahead and at least try it and that's just how i am it's like if i need something that i know i cannot do alone and i don't have the answer for but i need an answer i will reach out to whoever i can think can actually give me that answer and so i for me it's just I, you know, it's what I do. And sometimes you kind of have to put yourself out there and do something that you're really uncomfortable doing, mm-hmm. but you, you, this is your business. So you can't just sit back. I'm too so scared to ask about it. You got to get comfortable real quick <laughs> to talk to these people. I hear that. So one last plug on this fund. When, when is it expected to come online? And if people want to know more about this fund, they should follow you on LinkedIn. Yes. LinkedIn. Get in your DMs. Yes, definitely. Get on my DM, go on LinkedIn, uh, Lolita Robinson and, um, you know, reach out to me. I honestly, I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know these people. I'm not going to respond. I respond to just about everybody because I've been in your place. 
you know? And so I am going to reach out to you. I'm going to respond to you, you know, and let's have a conversation. Let's set something up and talk. Even if your business, you're not ready to, for VC funding, you're still in those early stages, reach out to me because I feel you, I know you and I know what's going on and let's just talk. That's a good approach. A warm soul. We like it. <laughs> hey, I've, I've been through it. So <laughs> if I can help somebody else not go through what I went through, then let me just do it. You know, I appreciate that. <laughs> and I wish more people took that approach. So as we get ready to close, I would like to encourage everyone to subscribe to my podcast called Where's the Funding, um, where I have these types of conversations and others around entrepreneurship and raising funds.